Well, it's a joy to be back in the pulpit this Sunday. I'm so very thankful for the way that uh, Pastor Justin led you all last week in considering how God can even use the deepest sufferings in this life to actually draw you closer to him. It's an important reminder that we must take heed uh, often. Now today, uh, we're going to be opening back up to Genesis. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 29. It's going to be on page 23 in those black ESV pew Bibles. In a similar vein, we are going to be looking and seeing the work of God in peculiar situations. Although it's not going to be inexplicable suffering, it is a messy situation. And like we have seen before, God will use crooked sticks to make straight lines. That God and his promises are not thwarted by the deception of sin and man. But in spite of it, God continues his great plan for humanity. He continues his great plan to bring about the promise given to Eve in the garden that God is going to send someone to defeat Satan's sin and death. Additionally, we're also going to see God's plan move forward with Jacob himself. Jacob himself. A man who has been chosen by God to be an instrument of covenant faithfulness. But Jacob has a lot of growing that needs to happen in his own life. And I would argue, even in this passage and the passages to come, God is not afraid to use very difficult moments, messy situations to accomplish his purposes. And thanks be to God for that. That he doesn't look at the mess of our own lives and go, I I can't do anything about that. But rather, even in the deepest, messiest of situations, we see God's plan moving forward. So I'm going to stop there. I want to read for us Genesis 29. It's a little bit longer of a chapter, but I think it's important for us to try to get the whole context. So if you're able to, just follow along with me as I read Genesis 29. It reads, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well flocks were watered, the stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all of the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where did you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. Verse 8. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob... His sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to, this, to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. 
Verse 14, and Laban said to him, surely you are bone, you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah, and Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you, you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and he will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. Verse 30. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us in Genesis today. Now, Genesis 29 is an interesting chapter, isn't it? In many ways, it seems like a script that could have, you know, come out of some of those older shows like Judge Judy or Jerry Springer or contemporary like The Bachelor where like the whole purpose is to show the drama of human relationships. And we've seen the messiness and conflict that's already surrounded Jacob and his family, and it continues. And if you actually know the rest of Genesis, you'll see that it even continues more after this. It gets messier and messier. But before we get into the details of the narrative, I want us to back up for a moment and go back to Genesis chapter 28. Because before Jacob arrived in Haran, and remember, the reason why he was traveling to this region was so he could find a wife. Yes, he was fleeing away from the danger of being killed by his brother Esau, but he had strict instructions to go to his homeland, where his family was originally from, and to find a wife. But if you remember in Genesis 28... Jacob had a unique encounter with God. Do you remember this? This unique encounter in dream with God where God spoke to him and revealed many things about him. But I want to point out in chapter 28, verse 14, God promised Jacob that he was a chosen son. 
another chosen son, a means of continuation for his people. And specifically through Jacob, his offspring would be the size and the breadth and the depth of the dust of the earth. That the same promise that was given to Abraham and given to Isaac was also given to Jacob. He was a he used to continue the, the Abrahamic covenant. But we also saw that through Jacob, there would be an offspring that would lead to the blessing of the whole world. And if you've been with us through Genesis, we know that that singular offspring, that singular seed, is Jesus Christ that will come later on, that will bless the entire world. So we know Jacob's this chosen son to be part of the continuation of the Abrahamic covenant. But we also learn with Jacob in particular, God told him in 2815 that I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you even as you travel. I'm going to be with you no matter where you are. You can trust me no matter what. And so I want you to keep that in mind as we look at Genesis 29 and begin to try to see, okay, where, where is God doing here? What's actually going on? And so we're going to look at this chapter in, in three sections. The first section is going to be looking at the well and seeing how Jacob meets Rachel. And then we're going to see in verses 15 through 30 how the deceiver Jacob is then deceived by Laban. And lastly, in verses 31 through 35, we're going to see God's plan unfolding despite all of that messiness. Because even when God's name is not explicitly mentioned as if, in meaning that God is actively doing something that the author records here, we do know, church, that God promised to be with his people. And that does not stop here in Genesis 29. So let's look at the first section. Jacob going to the well. Jacob finally reaches the very land in which he set out to reach. He's gone that, that 400-mile journey from Canaan to the land of Haran to find a wife. And we see he goes to a well first. If you remember, back in Genesis 24, it sounds a lot like how when Abraham wanted Isaac to find a wife and send a servant, he went to a well to also find a wife for Isaac. There's a lot of parallels to Genesis 24. But if you remember, in Genesis 24... The servant was praying to God the whole time, saying, Lord, guide me, direct me. We don't see that here from Jacob. But we see him taking action. And we don't know for sure, but it's likely it was the very same well that the servant was at. Now, while Jacob is hanging out the well, and he's talking to the shepherds as they're waiting for basically all of the sheep and all the shepherds to get there so they can open the well only once, to allow the water to come out and they can close the well because you would do that for the protection of the water. As he's waiting and talking to them, he's, he's finding out that he is where he wants to be. And then we're told that he hears that Rachel's coming. Rachel's coming. Now later in verse 17, we learn that Rachel's described as beautiful in appearance. Beautiful in appearance. I think in many ways... Jacob was love-struck right in that moment, right? It was kind of love at first sight. And so he does the very thing in which the shepherds told him not to do, and that is to, to move the mouth of the well so that the sheep could get a drink. And he does this, I think, just to get Rachel's attention, right? To show off a little bit. And to be honest, I can't be too judgmental on Jacob here. 
of, of trying to use your strength to impress a woman, because I do this with my wife, Gina, all the time. I try to move things that I shouldn't move on my own simply because I want her to look at me and smile. So Jacob takes his giant, heavy, well-lid that we're told that normally all the shepherds move together. He does it by himself. And then it says in verse 11 that Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Now, to our you know, first reading of that, that might sound kind of awkward and kind of weird. Like, what are you, just kissing people you've never met before and you're weeping with them? Well, we have to remember the context here is this was not like a romantic kiss. This was a, a familial, like, I am part of your family. It is good to see you type of kiss. And that he wept aloud, I think, mostly because Jacob realized that much of what he was hoping to accomplish, God was lining that up. He had made it to his homeland. He had met this beautiful woman that could possibly be his wife. And and maybe he's just an emotional guy. So he wept aloud. But look at verse 12. It says, Rachel is informed on the details, and she runs back to Laban to tell him all of what... He has learned from Jacob himself. And Laban then returns by running back to the well. Now Laban probably thought that Jacob, like the servant in the past, he had camels, he had gifts, he had all this kind of stuff for him. So Laban is quick to go back to the well. And what does he find? Well, he doesn't find his entourage of riches, but he does find Jacob. And it says in verse 14 that they discussed and disclosed Basically, all the details of who Jacob is. And we see Laban acknowledge that they are from the same place, right? They're cut from the same cloth. But here's the irony, church. What they're going to see is that Laban and Jacob are alike in more ways than they probably realize in this moment. In particular, the way that they like to deceive and use people to accomplish their own agenda. So that's the first section. There's Jacob meeting Rachel at the well. And then starting in verse 15, as we move into the second section, we see that Jacob, the deceiver, is going to now be deceived. Because at this point in, in Jacob's life, if you recall, Jacob's kind of gotten everything he's wanted, hasn't he? Despite his own sin, despite him lying and deceiving his brother and his father, it seems like everything's kind of going well for Jacob. Right? He's gotten the birthright. He's gotten the blessing. He's, he's gotten the covenantal blessing from God himself. He's made it to the land. Right? He's met Rachel. Is Jacob's sin ever going to catch up with him? Well, church, I think what we're going to begin to see here in 29 and in the chapters to come is that Jacob is going to enter into the school of hard knocks. He is... His sin and the ways that he needs to grow as a person, God will start doing that. And we see that starting here with Jacob and Laban. Because what we learn is that Laban has two daughters, not just Rachel. Rachel is actually the younger daughter. The older daughter is Leah. And it says not only that Rachel is beautiful, but we also learn that Leah's eyes are weak or soft, it says in verse 17. Now, some like to speculate, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean she was not beautiful in appearance? Now, we really don't know. We really don't know. 
but eyes were important in this context. Oftentimes, when a bride or a daughter would be covered and they would have a veil, you could only really see their eyes. But we do know that in contrast, we're told that Rachel was beautiful and that Jacob loved Rachel. He did not love Leah. He did not love Leah. And as Jacob and Laban are talking about what this agreement with him living there is going to be, we see Jacob come up with a plan. Tells Laban, I will work for you for seven years to earn the right to the arm of your daughter, Rachel. Rachel. Now, just a quick note. It doesn't, Jacob was not trying to buy Rachel. It's not as if Rachel was property to buy. But in this context, it was very appropriate and a custom that the groom would give a bridal gift to the family, basically, to uh, start off the marriage right between the two families. But Jacob doesn't have any riches, right? He doesn't have anything to give Laban. So he decides, I will give you seven years of labor, seven years of wages as a token of my love and commitment to your daughter. And we learn that that's what they agree to. And Jacob works for Laban for seven years. And we're even told it seems like it flew by. And why? Because Jacob loved Rachel. He loved her. And after seven years, he goes to Laban in verse 21 and asks for his wife. What I have done and promised you, I have completed. And he goes to Laban to get what they agreed upon. And what does Laban do? He goes, well, let's have a party first. Let's have a party first. In this context, it would have been very appropriate, much like wedding receptions in our own day, that there would probably have been drinking involved, alcohol involved. And so there's this big party that happens between Jacob and Laban and all the family. And at the end of the party, they go in, right, to the, the tent to consummate the marriage. So there have been probably drinking involved. It's probably dark out, right? Maybe the bride is veiled. And you can see, begin to see, oh, there's a lot of factors going on here. A lot of factors. But what happens? Well, verse 25, there's a, there's a switcheroo of, of sorts, right? Laban, instead of actually giving Rachel to Jacob, gives Leah to consummate the marriage. And it says in verse 25, behold, it was Leah. It wasn't Rachel. Now, don't miss the surprise there. Like, can you imagine that first morning conversation? They both wake up. Like, did I? Did you? Did we? Yes. Yes. Oh, church, do you see the irony in this? You see the irony for, for Jacob, this deceiver, the one who pretended to be the older son to get what he wanted, has now been deceived by the older daughter pretending to be the younger daughter? See, the deceiver has been deceived. Now, we don't know if Leah was knowing all this was going on, knowing that, that she was deceiving Rachel. I, we're not really told. But we do know that Jacob held Laban responsible for this. And so he goes to Laban in verse 25 and says, what have you done? Why have you done this to me? And Laban responds in verse 26. 
He says, we do not give to the younger what belongs to the firstborn or to the older. Those words must have pierced Jacob's heart. The very thing that he did to his brother of taking away something that culturally belonged to him, he deceived, and now Jacob has been deceived too. Jacob then goes on to complete the week and ends up marrying Rachel and working another seven years. But here, church, is where I want to take a, take a moment, right, a step back and see that God has not abandoned his promise to Jacob. God is not surprised by any of this. And I wouldn't even say, church, that God is punishing Jacob in this moment. But he is shaping him. Right? He is using the events and the actions of people like Laban to shape and to teach Jacob about his own heart and his own sinfulness. He's allowing Laban to give him medicine that he justly deserves. See, although we, don't, we do know that God loves Jacob, we, we're told that over and over again. I think in one of God's greatest acts of love here, church, to Jacob, is actually to expose Jacob's sin. Expose his own deceitfulness in his past. Expose his own consequences of what he does and how that affects other people. And God's greatest love for us, church, is oftentimes he will use events or people, sins of others, to expose our own sin. Expose the own, our own ways that our hearts need to be changed, how our attitudes need to be challenged, how our character needs to grow. Not every hard situation is because of your sin, but some may be. And God will use these hard situations to teach us and to grow us. The book of Hebrews reminds us that God actually disciplines those whom he loves. Not as an act of punishment, right? Not as an act of that you have to atone for your sin, that you have to get right with God in order for God to love you. But no, God disciplines us just like a good father disciplines his son. Because what's the end goal of that? Why would you correct anything? Is so that there will be growth and repentance and change occurring in your life. Things will happen to us, church. Events and circumstances that we would never foresee in our life. And I would encourage all of us to see those as God's mercy in wanting to shape us into the very people he's called us to be. Discipline doesn't feel good in the moment. It never does. But many of us see how when God steps into our lives allow certain things to draw us closer to him, that can be a very good thing, a very good thing, even if we don't see it in the moment. Because the truth is, church, God is being faithful to Jacob here. He's being faithful to be present with him, but present in order to change him, to sanctify him, after he's already chosen him. And we, too, can trust God's plan amidst hardship and trust that God is faithful to us and even so faithful that he's willing to expose our sin because he knows of the way that that can affect us and affect our relationship with him. See, God is not indifferent to sin. He goes right after it. 
and we're thankful for that. Now, last section we see in verses 31 through 35, a glimmer of God's faithfulness, even amidst this plan of human sin and deception, because what happens? Well, starting in verse 31, we see that God has compassion on Leah. And we see God grant life to her womb once again. We'll look at Rachel next week. But with Leah, we're told that she has four sons with Jacob. Four sons named Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And notice after the naming, after every son was born and the name there was given, Leah's indicating a lot of hurt that she has. Hurt that her husband doesn't love her and want her. She says, I'm going to name my son this because the Lord is good, and I'm hoping maybe Jacob will love me. All the way to Judah, which you'll notice that she doesn't really expect the name Judah to bring about any renewed relationship between, between Jacob and her, but does let Judah be a reminder of God's faithfulness to her. You see, even though Jacob had rejected Leah, and he did so. God did not. God was at work. God was wanting Leah to play the role in which she has. In church, this is where we have to zoom out because how would the original audience have heard about this, right? How would have Israel, as they are wandering in the desert, how would they have heard this story? What kind of encouragement would it have brought to their ears? Well, they would have noticed that these, these sons of Leah played a huge role in their family line. Specifically, the author of Genesis and the author of Exodus and all of the Pentateuch who have been telling the original audience, they would have reminded him, or Moses would have reminded them, that he is a descendant of Levi. That Moses himself wouldn't be here if it wasn't for God's faithfulness amidst this marriage between Jacob and Leah. Additionally, we know from reading the rest of the Bible that it's through one of the other sons, Judah, through his family line comes David or King David. And who comes through the line of King David, church? Jesus. So even in the midst of just the messiness Right, the things that you would see on a reality TV show and go, I don't know how anything good can come from this. We see God go, no, no. I can do all things. I am not thwarted by sin. I am not thwarted by human deception. I will even work my plan in the muck and the mire of it. You see, church, God's plan is always at work. In the Old Testament, and I believe Genesis 29 for us today, is giving Christians a way to see that God is faithful to his work. And his faithfulness can be seen even in the darkest of hours. And we know this ultimately by what event, church? By the cross, right? Where we see the greatest display of human sin. Where they put the only person to have lived a perfect life the only person who had no sin against his name, they put that person at the cross of Calvary to die a sinner's death. But what does God do even in the messiness of that situation? Well, we know that it was actually God's plan to bring the redemption of our own sin. That Jesus was not there for his behalf, but he was there for our behalf. 
that he was there to atone for our sins. So even in the darkest moments of human history, God's plan is always moving forward. Always. And let me take you, this is the, we're going to end here. Let me take you to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. It should be on the screen, Mike. Thanks. And remember, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is this wonderful commentary of the Old Testament. And much of previous to this moment, the author of Hebrews has been telling us about Abraham. He's been telling us about Isaac and Jacob and God's plan in their life and how all of their lives was God moving that plan, that gospel of Genesis 3 forward. And then he's getting to the end of the book and he says this. In verse 23, chapter 10, he says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Promises made, promises kept once again, church. That's what this is all about, right? That's why we're looking at Genesis. Not just so we can learn some of the crazy stories of the Old Testament, but that we can learn about the God who's faithful. We can learn about the God whose faithfulness is a reflection of who he is, that he is good and he can be trusted. And we can cling to Christ because of him. Even today, we don't know all of what God is doing. And maybe you have a, a situation in your life that you would say rivals Genesis 29. That's okay. But if God has been a faithful all this time and was faithful at the cross and faithful in his resurrection and is faithful because he's still on the throne today, we can trust him right now with all those details. Church, let's, let's go ahead and end there. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond. Well, Father, once again, we are thankful for your mighty word, that you are a God of covenant faithfulness, that you 